Our culture loves apocalyptic genres. The success of the Left Behind series testifies to this. And what we love about the apocalypse is the sensational. We excited about the sensational, about governmental antichrist conspiracy theories, the romantic idea of the church underground fighting for the faith. And of course, who doesn't like Kirk Cameron fighting off the whore of Babylon? But what if this was all wrong? Would our culture love a more ordinary end times story, an ordinary eschatology? Perhaps not, but who cares? <laughs> we care about what the Bible says. And here in our text this morning, we are in an apocalyptic genre. We're going to be spending several weeks in apocalyptic genre, the visions, the night visions of Zechariah, which span from chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 6. And as we are dealing with an apocalyptic genre, it's important to be guided by the immediate text itself. Here, God gave Zechariah an interpretation angel, which God often does with the prophets, think Daniel and John on Patmos. And here, Zechariah receives this interpretation angel. Verse 9, Then I said, What are these, my Lord? Little Lel Lord, speaking to the angel who was with him. And the angel who talked with me, that's the interpretation angel, said to me, I will show you what they are. So this angel showed Zechariah the vision and the what these things were. And this angel continues to show us today, not in subjective visions like Zechariah, but objectively here in the immediate text, this angel will guide us today. But apocalyptic texts like this also need not only the immediate text, but we need the surrounding texts. We need the context. We need the Bible. We need to read the Bible historically and redemptively. We need to know, therefore, the themes of Scripture, the structure of Scripture. And when we know the themes and structure of Scripture, we will then be able to interpret this part of Scripture in light of the whole of Scripture. And, of course, we need that grand key of interpretation that Jesus gave us when he said that the entire Old Testament, from the prophets to the historical books, to the poetical books, that the entire Old Testament is about Christ. And with that key, historically, redemptively, and Christologically, we can now, and see, or not now, but we can see the truth of this vision. You know, so many get in trouble with visions because they lack that hermeneutical key. They lack seeing the Bible in its whole and so-called literalist interpretations and so forth are more than literal, but really sensational, too American often, and wrong. So what is the meaning of this first night vision? That's a question I want to answer this morning. What is the meaning of this first night vision? It means, first of all, that something was not right. We read in verse 7, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of the Shabbat, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, 
Now that dating has nothing peculiar. That dating scheme means this. Here's the significance of the date. Israel in exile for 70 years has now returned to the promised land. By this date, Israel was back home. In the promised land and had already began constructing the temple that was destroyed 70 years prior by the Babylonians. And now they're building, they've already, by this date, have built the foundation. But there's a problem. They'd only built the foundation. And the problem is found in the date, in the name of the date. Look at your text. It says, not the month of Sabbath, but Shabbat. He dates it not according to the biblical name Sabbath, but by the pagan religious date of Shabbat. Why Shabbat? Because things are not right in the land. They've returned home, but they haven't truly occupied. They were not there alone. There were foreigners in the land. They have not returned to the Sabbath. They have not returned to rest, but they have returned to continued oppression by the pagans living in the promised land. And these pagans, as we will see, they themselves were enjoying rest while Israel was suffering persecution in the land. Something is not right. Shabbat. Something is not right. The exiles had suffered the consequences of their covenant-breaking parents. Their parents broke the covenant. They repented. They've returned. Why are things not better? Why has God not answered the covenant he made with Abraham that the nations who oppressed Israel? According to Abraham, the, the nations that oppressed Israel were to receive the cursings. But here they are at rest while Israel suffered. So perhaps Israel began to think maybe we should give up on the Sabbath and try to find rest in Shabbat. Maybe we should give up in the light of Scripture, the Sabbath, and, and just take this new cultural norm. Let's just follow the new cultural norm and find rest in Shabbat. And it's in this time, it's a very dark time when things were not right, that God gave Zechariah these night visions. And the word of the Lord, he says, chapter 7, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the word of the Lord came in the midst of their darkness. Life was dark. Yet the word of the Lord came. That is, God could see through the blackness. He could make their way straight. And this is our God, our valley of death God. That is, he, he takes us through the valley of death, through the darkness. But there, he sees the way and he can lead us. He can guide us with his rod and his staff to comfort and protect us. That is, his word, his revelation can secure us when we don't see so clearly. We have his word to show us the way. And it is the word that showed Israel the way. And what did the word of the Lord see? Verse 8, I saw in the night, in the darkness of the night, 
Here it was dark. Why night? It was dark. It was dark days for Israel, but God could see. And behold, what did God see? Behold, a man riding on a red horse. And this man riding on a red horse was not alone. We read that behind him, he has a cohort, a legion. Behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Now the color of these horses, red, white, sorrel, and so forth. These there's, not, there's no significance here. These are just common colors of horses in the ancient world. The command of the rider, however, is important. Drop down to verse 11, and you can hear the red horse rider command these other horses, and they answered the angel of the Lord, verse 11, the angel of Yahweh, that's important, not just any angel, but he's the angel of Yahweh who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, the earth remains at rest. These these uh, horses, and this might be fun, children, horses in the Bible speak. <laughs> at least visionary horses in the Bible speak. So these aren't just normal horses. But they answer. They answer the Yahweh the angel of Yahweh, who is also called, look at, drop down to verse 12. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Whose name in Bible, in the Bible is Sabaoth, Lord of hosts? Who in the Bible rides the war horse with the company angels, with the cohort, with the legion to destroy his enemy? Who is the angel of the Lord or the Lord of hosts who has destroyed evil. You see, the rider here on the red horse is none other than a pre-incarnate Christ. You see Christ in his pre-incarnate self all throughout the Old Testament because Christ has been working in the Old Testament. He has been working since the fall. The promised offspring has been at work from the very beginning once the fall. Christ went to work to restore paradise. And it says here in our text, the, the rider on the red horse, verse 8, was standing among the myrtle trees. Myrtle trees. Is there any significance to these trees, the myrtle tree? It's actually a very important tree in the Old Testament, referenced often. If you have your Bible, it's an important reference. is Isaiah 55, verse 13. You can turn over to the major prophets right after the poetical books and find Isaiah 55.3 or 13, or just listen along. It is an important text, one you might want to highlight. Isaiah 55, verse 13. Here we read in verse 13, Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord. It, the myrtle, the myrtle shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. When did the briar come up? Thorns and thistles plaguing the ground. What does that remind you of? Can you think of any tree in the Old Testament? Did any Old Testament trees ever signify everlasting life? Huh. 
When was everlasting life cut off? Now replaced instead of, he says, instead of this, instead of the briar, shall come up myrtle, which is a sign for the name of the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see, this warrior writer was standing among the trees of life. Verse 8, in the glen. Now, in the glen, the glen, is there's no biblical significance with the glen. This word, however, in Hebrew, can also be translated, and often more so, often more so translated, the deep. The deep is very Old Testament. We first hear about it in Genesis 1-2, where another member of the Godhead stood over the face of the deep. There in the beginning, the Holy Spirit stood over the face of the deep, and now the second member of the Trinity stands over the face of the deep. The deep is a very important scripture, analogy, picture. The deep, Noah, it is referenced in song in Noah, with Noah who faced the deep. Who else faced the deep? We hear it in song with the Red Sea, Egyptian crossing. Well, the church crossed, but the Egyptians faced the deep. Or it's referenced in song when Israel uh, crosses the Jordan River. You see, the deep is a picture of chaos. The deep is a picture of destruction. It is a picture of death. And what happens when God stands over the deep? What happened when the Holy Spirit hovered over the deep? From the deep, new life, paradise, salvation, and destruction. Destruction of the chaos, destruction of the darkness. God created the world through the deep and gave new life to Adam and Eve after destroying the deep by bringing forth paradise from the darkness to be our dwelling place. Again, he stood over Noah and Israel throughout the same, through the same deep, making them his people, destroying their enemy and saving his people and drawing them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Why milk and honey? Paradise. What happens when God stands over the deep? Rest. When God stands over the deep, there is Sabbath. And who was swallowed by the deep, yet prevailed, and in prevailing has given us life eternal? What is the meaning of the first night vision? Here we see with the writer standing among the myrtle trees in the deep that things were not right, that that was about to change. God would make things right. How would God make things right? First, he would, he would bring justice. We begin verse 10. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered, the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth. This is a very common, this is very common in the ancient world, this reconnaissance mission. He gave these uh, horses this recon mission. They were the Marines. <laughs> they were sent out. They did reconnaissance. They were the Lord's spies. 
special operation forces. They went secretly to observe and they brought back accurate, up-to-date information and were privy to that council. Verse 11. And behold, the earth, they said, the earth remains at rest. The earth. Israel's not at rest, but the earth is at rest. Rest is a very important Old Testament word. It was important in the beginning because that was the goal. Important for Israel. That was the goal and the promise. That's important for the end of Scripture because that's the promise. Rest. Rest was also a biblical prerequisite for building the temple. There had to be rest in the land before they could actually build and construct a temple. Before then, they were nomadic, uh, nomadic peoples who had the tabernacle. But it wasn't until David secured the rest, but not even for David because he was a man of blood, but his son Solomon was allowed. The land was at rest. And there with Solomon, the Lord allowed the temple to be built. But now there's no rest. There's no temple. It cannot be built. Rather, Shabbat, pagan religion is being built up and strengthened in the Lord's land because the pagans were at rest. It seems the nations of the world were blessed for cursing Israel. It's backwards. It's supposed to be the other way around. The promise was to Abraham, who dishonors you, I will curse. They were dishonoring Israel, but they were blessed. And so the interpretive angel asked the Lord of hosts, host verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? In the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years. 70 years is very Old Testament. Old Testament phrase. It harkens back to Jeremiah's prophecy that Israel would go into exile, Judah, for 70 years. But after the 70 years, they would return. And they would return to peace. They would return to comfort and prosperity. They would return and rebuild the temple. But none of that is happening. They've actually returned to more oppression. They've returned to the pagans at rest. And so the question is really this. When will there be justice, Lord? And when will there be blessing for us? The question is this, will you make things right? Will you give us Sabbath? Should we look to the Shabbat and give up on the Lord? Verse 13, the Lord answered. And the Lord, Yahweh, answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Those are important Old Testament. Those are important biblical words: grace and comfort. What is the answer to our sins and miseries? For example, what is the answer to our sins and misery? Why did God choose Abraham? Because he was the brightest among the Babylonian idol worshippers. <laughs> was he the best idol worshipper in the land? Did God choose him because he forgot the idol worship? We don't. We're not told. Because he was super obedient and so forth? Or is there grace found in election? You see, the answer to Israel's problem is grace. Grace alone is the answer. And how does grace come in the New Testament? We know in the New Testament, grace comes how? By hearing. Guess how it came in the Old Testament? Verse 14, so the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. 
It's an Old Testament word, phrase, verb, clause, command. <laughs> cry out. You know what cry out means in the Old Testament? That's the Old Testament way of saying, preach it, brother. Preach it. Preach what? Israel needs salvation. So God commissioned Israel, excuse me, Zechariah, to preach good news. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Preach it. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly. Here's what Zechariah was to preach. He was to preach and declare God's word. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. That's what ministers do. They say, thus saith the Lord of hosts. They preach God's word and they don't preach fanciful stories. They don't preach the sensational, but the ordinary word of God. Which is gospel. Which makes things right. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem. And for Zion. Here's the gospel of grace. God is exceedingly jealous for his people. Here's the gospel, verse 16. And he has returned to Jerusalem with mercy. This is the gospel. God's mercy and jealousy for his people. You see, he's returned to preserve his royal city. He's returned to preserve his royal city, Jerusalem. He has returned to keep and keep and reserve, preserve his priestly temple, Judah. That is, God is extremely jealous for his people and his place. His people and his place of worship. He is jealous for his people to worship him with truth, with reverence and all. And this is good news for Israel. That is wonderful news. God is returning with mercy. And that's what we want. But what is good news for God's people is bad news for those who are not his own. Verse 15. And I, he says, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. God had seemed to give them providence, common grace here. This picture of common grace, he's provided for these nations, but they have only turned further and further into their idolatry and to themselves, and they've only furthered the disaster. And so God has returned. He is returning in justice, which is not good news for some. Good news for some, but not good news for others. You never want justice with God. You don't want strict justice with God. Trust me. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You want mercy. God will deliver His people with mercy by destroying their enemy. And this is very Old Testament. Think Noah. How did God deliver Noah? The deep destroyed the world and all its inhabitants. Think Egypt. How did God deliver Israel in Egypt? The deep consumed Pharaoh and his army. Think Christ. How did Christ deliver his people? The deep turned on its creator. It consumed Christ, who knew no sin, 
but became sin. Consumed our sin, consumed our evil, who was victorious over the deep. And in Christ, we have victory over the deep. Therefore, Christ can stand beside the deep, stand over it with everlasting life, with the myrtle trees. Think the future. If your Bibles, turn with me to the future. <laughs> Second Peter. We actually are going to the future from Zechariah to Second Peter. We're going to the New Testament and beyond. We're actually moving beyond church history now. We're getting super eschatological. Second Peter, chapter three, verses six and seven. Second Peter, chapter three. Did I say that? Second Peter, three, six and seven. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What world existed? There was a world that existed that existed that was not this world. That world that then existed, what is that? Noah. It perished. And from that world that then existed through the deep, through the flood waters, a new creation. That's the earth we now live on. But here's the future. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exists are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a just God. The deep is a fearful thing. Therefore, we need one who has conquered the deep. We need mercy. We need grace. And that is what God promises here in Zechariah 16. Therefore, says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Grace alone means salvation is the Lord alone. It means that he does all the work then. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line. First of all, God will build it. It's God's house. He will build it in, in their midst. God will give them rest. He will build his house. Verse 16, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. The measuring line is very Old Testament. If you know your Old Testament prophets, you know the measuring line. If you don't, you may need some help. What's the measuring line, Pastor? Job, Job 38.5 gives us the measuring line. Job 38.5 says, who determined its measurements? Job asked, or God tells Job, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job, this is God speaking down to Job. He thinks, Job, you know, Job, you think you know everything? Who determined the measurements? Who surely knows what I know? Or who stretched the line upon it? Speaking of creation, he says, it is, the answer is me, God. God stretches, God measures, God constructs what is his. Jeremiah, the prophet, used the same measuring imagery, the same measuring line imagery to show that God establishes the boundaries of his cities. God establishes the boundaries of Jerusalem, says Jeremiah. And in saying that, he says, and the line shall measure. He says, and the measuring line shall go out further. Think Palestine, pull out the measuring line. And God says, and keep measuring, keep going. God says, don't get focused on Palestine. You don't have to send your money to the nation of Israel so they can bomb the Arabs. Doesn't seem very Christian to me to give money to a war horse. Think greater. Think like Abraham. 
who look beyond the promised land to a better country. There's a heavenly one. How would God think God make things right? By grace, through his promise. Verse 17, cry out again. Cry out again, says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Notice the word again four times in this short verse. Again, 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 again. Four agains. Because again, God will answer his promise. This means that this promise is based on previous promises. This promise is based on God's previous dealings with Israel. He has delivered. He will again deliver. And as we fall into sin again and again, He will deliver again and again. And again ends with the last offspring. Christ ends the again. He keeps God's law. He answers the call. He earned Sabbath. He earned that day that Adam lost. He earned paradise regained. The again stops with Abraham's offspring, the writer who overcame the deep by taking upon himself its curses. Cursed be he who hung on a tree. He became our sin and died in our place. You see, friends, the cross is our deep. And there justice was satisfied. There the enemy, sin and death, was overcome. Yet the, day, the deep could not conquer Christ, for in the resurrection we pass through the waters of the deep in baptism into everlasting life. Christ stands among the myrtle trees. That is, he stands with his church victorious. And by faith, we are Abraham's offspring, we are told by Paul later on in the New Testament. By faith, we are heirs according to the promise, the Jerusalem from above, by grace chosen in Christ, God with us in our midst, where in the new covenant, in the new covenant, the city, in the new covenant, Judah and the temple become one. The people in the place coalesce into the temple of God and the Holy Spirit now dwells. We are the city on the hill and we shine our light into this dark world. We are the city on the hill with all these wonderful treasures, yet darkness surrounds us. We're surrounded by the deep. And we fall in this darkness, do we not? We stumble. And so we hear in the cry of Zechariah 12, how long will you have no mercy in Jerusalem? How long will you not have mercy? We hear that cry in Revelation chapter 6, 10. And the martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? Those put to death for the faith, those persecuted from the faith, we read in Revelation 6, cry out, how long? How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? They are at rest. And the answer, how long is church history? 
That's the answer. We still suffer this sad age. We still cry out, how long, O Lord? And we are prone. Church history proves this. We are prone to think, well, perhaps we should delight in Shabbat instead of the Sabbath. Our churches, even in Missoula, bear witness to letting in and delighting in the culture. If this vision shows us that God is working behind the scenes of the deep darkness, he's extending his kingdom throughout it with the gospel, it's not exciting. This ordinary end time, this is end times. It's not as exciting. What's the end times? Well, it's not that exciting, but actually kind of is. What is it? Well, it's the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. And right now, God is extending his kingdom. Throughout, his measuring line is going out to the ends of the earth. And right now, it seems, it seems that the earth is at peace while the church is persecuted, fulfilling the Great Commission. As Revelation says, being beheaded for the gospel. Martyrs are being beheaded for the gospel as we speak. Beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. It's not as exciting in times. But biblical in times, for now, for now is ordinary. For now, it's ordinary. But one day, it will be extraordinary when God unleashes the deep against all those who have not repented of their sins and trusted in this writer, warrior, our Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth. And as Luther says in that wonderful mighty fortress of our God, with one little word, one little word, he will fail it all. The word of the Lord is true. We have overcome the deep. We've become one with Christ who now stands among us with everlasting life. And so that now, even in this hard, sad world, as the darkness surrounds us, living in the deep as we are, we are living in the deep. Living in the chaos and the destruction and the evil that surrounds us. Being put to death and persecuted for the faith. But even now, even in the midst of that, Paul says that we, even then, are more than conquerors. Even when we are being put to death, he says, as sheep led to the slaughters, even then we are more than conquerors. Because the rider stands over the deep. He has prevailed. We have prevailed in Christ. We will one day be buried into the deep ground. But that's not our final resting place. It's only a picture. The deep will be opened. Christ returns and we will have the full resurrection of body and soul. We will have eternal life. Ours is everlasting life already, friends. Ours is the Sabbath now. We are participating in it today. Sabbath. And that's just a foreshadow. Today is just a foreshadow the glory we will have forever as we enjoy the fruit of the myrtle trees. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.